0: Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. May in
1: Elizabethan England was balmy. Late that month... 29-year-old playwright and poet Christopher Marlowe went to a lodging house in southeast London with three acquaintances, Ingram Frizer, Nicholas Skears,
0: and Robert Poley. The four men spent a long, quiet day together. Enjoying the weather, they walked in the garden, smoked tobacco, and played backgammon. Their evening was capped off with dinner together in a private room. To anyone watching, the group seemed like close friends, just enjoying a casual visit and a large meal.
1: After they ate, Marlow laid down on a nearby bed digesting. Meanwhile, Freiser, Skiers, and Poli remained sitting on a bench facing the table. Then the time came to pay the bill.
0: Marlow and Freiser began to argue. The two men quarreled bitterly, disagreeing over the cost of the food and drinks they shared.
1: Fryzer was still sitting on the bench, his back to Marlowe as they argued, when suddenly the writer jumped up from bed. He charged at Fryzer and the two men struggled. Marlowe then grabbed Fryzer's dagger from its sheath. He swung wildly, striking Fryzer's head with the
0: dagger's handle. But Fryzer grabbed the dagger back and clutched it in his hands. He raised the weapon up, high into the air. He paused, staring at his companion, the famous playwright. With the dagger hovering above Marlowe's right eye, Freiser was faced with whether he would end the scribe's life.
1: Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday... We dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists.
0: But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth.
1: But sometimes it's not.
0: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our
1: first episode on the death of Christopher Marlowe, a playwright, poet, and possible spy in Elizabethan England. While he's often known for his literary work... There's plenty to suggest he dabbled in more nefarious realms.
0: Today, we'll talk about the world that surrounded Marlowe, his life, and storied writing career. We'll also discuss the official version of his murder and the shadowy circumstances surrounding his death, which occurred during a bar fight in London's Deptford area.
1: Next time, we'll discuss some of the conspiracy theories regarding Marlowe's death, including the possibility that he was murdered because of his identity. Some believe he was killed because of his sexuality or his atheist beliefs, or that he didn't die at all, and instead became the infamous William Shakespeare.
0: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. with better help. Visit betterhelp.com/conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com/conspiracy.
2: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake.
1: Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new money maker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker play the game and you could win money up to $2 million with more than $88 million in prizes ranging from $50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
2: A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. In
1: 1579, Christopher Marlowe arrived at the King's School in his hometown of Canterbury. Though he was just 14 years old, He was already smart enough to stand out from his peers, so smart that the school had given him a scholarship.
0: It was a helpful feather in his cap, granted that Marlow was one of the few poor students in attendance, outnumbered by boys from wealthy families. He wasn't a total outcast, but his background meant he didn't quite fit in with the crowd either.
1: However, the young writer was extremely observant, taking note of social conventions, He kept his notes to himself, planning to use them later in his writing career.
0: And in his studies, Marlowe dedicated himself to working hard and staying curious. His work ethic soon distinguished him from his peers. By 16, he won a prestigious scholarship to attend Cambridge University.
1: For the son of a poor shoemaker from Canterbury, attending Cambridge was a huge achievement. His future was full of possibilities.
0: And so, hopeful and optimistic, Marlowe left the King's school behind. He packed his few belongings and moved away from Canterbury, the only home he'd ever known. He settled in Cambridge, where he received a stipend from the school and shared a bedroom with other students. Once classes began, Marlowe
1: flourished. He studied Latin, philosophy, and rhetoric, subjects that
0: were the basis
1: for a classical education.
0: Despite the academic rigor, though, the prerequisites of Cambridge may have still left the young writer a little unsatisfied. Marlowe was a voracious reader. He still wanted more to ponder and more to do. And so, when he was alone, away from his teachers and classmates, Marlowe began writing.
1: Evidence suggests he started working on his famous play Dido, Queen of Carthage, and his translation of Ovid's Amores while at school. Clearly, even the most challenging coursework couldn't slow his rise to becoming a celebrated writer.
0: Marlowe worked obsessively to develop his talent and craft. When the time was right, he'd reveal his talents to the world.
1: Outwardly, Marlowe manifested his academic success by obtaining his bachelor's degree from Cambridge in 1584. It was a testament to how far he'd come from his humble origins. But this wasn't enough... So he stayed at Cambridge to
0: work towards his
1: Master of Arts.
0: Oddly enough, starting his master's was also when he began skipping out on classes. During his first semester, Marlow would disappear from campus for days, weeks, even months at a time. While his absences may sound strange to us today, for the time, this behavior was completely normal. Some master's students were allowed to come and leave throughout the year as they wished. They just needed the school's approval and had to support themselves. In total, Marlowe missed about half of that school
1: year, and the absences only mounted from there over the next few years.
0: His peers still grew suspicious of his whereabouts, given he didn't always get approval for his leaves and the climate they were living in. At the time, secrets and tensions in England were already running high.
1: During Marlowe's school years, England was an officially Protestant country run by Queen Elizabeth I. An especially paranoid ruler, Elizabeth targeted anyone who posed a threat to her rule. And because of her Protestant faith, this included Catholics whom she routinely persecuted many Catholics relocated to France, including a town called Reims.
0: Queen Elizabeth's paranoia was rooted in some truth, though. At the English seminary in Reims, plots to kill the queen ran wild, especially among Catholic students in exile. So, to combat
1: this insurrection, the British monarchy recruited young men, often from Cambridge, to become spies. Those agents then infiltrated Reims, surveilling the seminary for information about traitors.
0: With Marlowe missing from classes and the nation on high alert, one particular rumor gained traction. Maybe Marlowe was in France at Reims. The thing is, nobody could agree which side he was on, the exiled Catholic students or the Queens.
1: Some clarity came in June 1587, when an official letter arrived at Cambridge. Written by the Queen's Privy Council, the letter was addressed to school officials and stated that Marlowe, quote, had done Her Majesty a good service.
0: The counselors never explained when Marlowe's good service began or what exactly it entailed. But they did imply that whatever happened during his absences, school officials shouldn't be concerned. In other words, none of your business...
1: More surprisingly, the letter demanded two things of Cambridge. First, that the school deny
0: any rumors that Marlowe was a spy. And second, that the school award Marlowe his master's degree, which administrators had planned on withholding in light of his non-attendance.
1: Ultimately, the letter was a clear directive that Cambridge stopped defaming Marlowe's good name. The school had to obey royal orders, so soon after... It gave Marlowe his master's degree.
0: With his degree in hand, Marlowe's future was wide open. England was his for the taking. He'd waste no time or talent to make a name for himself in London.
1: Coming up, Marlowe's work slips into controversial and perhaps fatal territory.
2: Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify.
1: Now back to the story.
0: In 1587, Marlowe graduated Cambridge with two degrees while academia chattered about his reputation. Perhaps he was brilliant and a spy for the Queen. Though Marlowe never confirmed this, and there's no evidence that he continued after school ended, a role like that would have given him plenty of connections.
1: Connections that would help a young, hungry writer break into the theater scene. His reputation as an ex-spy gave Marlowe an air of danger and sophistication which made him agreeable to London's most influential people.
0: In the late 1500s, London was the place to be a playwright, a lively, cultured city bustling with energy and economic promise. And in the thick of it all, its theatre scene flourished, a popular pastime shared by royals and commoners alike.
1: The city was filled with open-air playhouses where people from all walks
0: of life watched the stage. The London theatre scene was equally dramatic behind the scenes. Though plays were subject to royal decree and censorship, many playwrights were able to slip risky work through by way of metaphors and body innuendo. Without a doubt, London was the perfect place for Marlowe to jumpstart his writing career.
1: After settling into a neighborhood with cheap cottages, close to the theaters and other artists, Marlowe wrote constantly, hell-bent on achieving literary success. Soon he'd finished his first play, Tamburlaine the Great, part 1.
0: The play was revolutionary. Until this point, most plays had been written and performed in rhymed verse but Marlowe wrote Tamburlaine the Great in blank verse, meaning unrhyming, like how people normally speak.
1: The play's lyrical dialogue, untethered by a rhyme scheme, was a hit. With one production, Marlowe changed the future of playwriting. Blank verse became the new standard.
0: The play was performed throughout 1587 to great acclaim. In fact, Part 1 was so popular that Marlowe continued the story and wrote Tamburlaine the Great, Part 2. Soon, his plays were in high demand as professional troops of actors played them out for crowded audiences.
1: Touring troops also performed Marlowe's work all across Europe thanks to printed publications of his plays. The relatively new innovation allowed Marlowe's words to reach
0: beyond England's borders. Marlowe achieved the lucrative status of international success and local legend while still in his 20s. His peers in London's literary scene thought of him as a wild, daring character and clearly admired his work. He was praised for his command of the craft, which writer Ben Johnson once described as, quote, the mighty line.
1: The praise continued as Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta, transfixed other writers. None other than the bard himself, William Shakespeare, took inspiration from Marlowe when he wrote The Merchant of Venice.
0: Apparently, Marlowe and Shakespeare weren't very close, but they ran in the same literary circles. Both had flourishing artistic careers. Both staged plays at public theaters, such as the famous Rose Theater.
1: Shakespeare even referenced Marlowe posthumously in his play As You Like It, with the line, quote, Dead shepherd, now I find thy saw of might, whoever loved,
0: that loved not at first sight. For an ordinary commoner from Canterbury, this was a huge accomplishment. His talent seemed endless, earned and lauded by his peers.
1: Yet while Marlowe's plays were zeitgeisty and popular, they were also layered with complex themes like politics, religion, sexuality, and
0: power. In his play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, the character of Dr. Faustus sells his soul to the devil for 24 years of knowledge and power. The play was written as a dark comedy and explored the connections between ambition and evil.
1: The play wasn't well received by everyone though, most notably the church due to its depiction of the close relationship between humanity and the devil. It gave many the impression that Marlowe was an atheist, something that, no doubt, irked Protestant Queen Elizabeth.
0: To make matters worse, Dr. Faustus was an incredibly popular show. So popular, the Queen worried about the effects it had on society, and plays required an official royal license to be performed.
1: There are two versions of Dr. Faustus, leading many to think that the play was revised to satisfy the Queen's standards. It seems Marlowe did get a license, but the final product may still have not been quite as clean as the Crown would have liked.
0: Whatever good graces Marlowe had with the Queen, after Dr. Faustus, they started to taper off. ¶¶
1: Beneath Marlowe's gilded reputation as a playwright was a darker side, a more violent, unpredictable man. For all his success, he drank and fought, much to the dismay of his peers.
0: This became evident one September day in 1589, when a fight broke out between Marlowe and a man named William Bradley.
1: William Bradley was the son of an innkeeper who feared for his life because he had defaulted on a loan. While it's not clear how well he knew Marlowe, Bradley did know poet Thomas Watson, Marlowe's friend, who just
0: so happened to be nearby. The fight between Marlowe and Bradley escalated quickly. It was big enough that a crowd gathered and called for the men to stop. While Thomas Watson initially watched on, once the brawl grew, for one reason or another, he felt he needed to intervene, So with one deep breath, he summoned his courage, drew his sword and separated Marlowe and Bradley.
1: Marlowe backed off right away. Bradley did not. He taunted Watson, daring him to fight with a sword in one hand and a dagger in the other. Then Bradley charged.
0: Watson stood his ground and raised his sword high into the air. Once Bradley was within range, Watson stabbed him in the chest.
1: Bradley died immediately, leaving Marlowe tangled in serious trouble, an accessory to manslaughter. Both were arrested and left to wait in jail until a jury decided the next day that Watson killed Bradley in self-defense.
0: Despite the verdict, Watson remained imprisoned for months, possibly because he didn't have the funds to pay bail. Marlowe, on the other hand, paid his bail and walked free. And soon enough, word of his arrest spread through London, reinforcing his rebellious reputation and adding to his fame.
1: In truth, much of Marlowe's public admiration came from his elusiveness. It seems he didn't let many people into his inner world, except for one man, his
0: patron, Thomas Walsingham. In this era, It was standard practice for writers to work with creative patrons, wealthy individuals who offered monetary backing to artists. We don't know exactly how Marlowe met Thomas or when, but the two ran in the same social circles, and it's possible they met each other through a spymaster named Francis Walsingham, Thomas's cousin. Had Marlowe been a spy in France, the two men likely would have crossed paths.
1: From what we know, though, it was Marlowe and Thomas's shared love of literature and art that solidified their bond. Apparently, Thomas Walsingham commissioned many plays and poems from Marlowe, paying him to write new, exciting work. And as his patron, he also protected Marlowe's career. Most likely, Walsingham paid his bail. This close relationship led many to believe that the two men were romantically involved.
0: Whether their relationship was romantic or platonic, one fact is certain. Walsingham's patronage allowed Marlowe's career to soar.
1: Until fate intervened. A few short years later, in 1592, a plague devastated London. What was once a bustling and Bohemian cultural center became a location associated with illness and death. In an effort to control the spread of the disease, playhouses across London closed with no signs of reopening.
0: It left Marlowe lonely and listless. Not only was he missing his main source of income, his life without the theater was devoid of passion.
1: Seeing his writer's depression in a gesture of friendship, Thomas Walsingham invited Marlowe to his property in Kent. And there, Marlowe considered his options. He could stay in the city, destitute and alone, or he could escape to the countryside, leaving London's hardships behind.
0: It wasn't a difficult decision. He accepted Walsingham's hospitality and settled on his estate.
1: For Marlowe, Kent brought the serenity London lacked. The estate's sprawling gardens and orchards were a refuge surrounded by brick walls The property had everything and more, from stables and fish ponds to acres of land housing deer, rabbits, and cattle.
0: The serene beauty soon found its way into Marlowe's work. He spent his days quietly working on his poem, Hero and Leander, a passionately rendered piece about love and desire. Though he himself never finished it, the poem was later completed by his friend, George Chapman. Marlowe's time at Kent's was
1: likely some of his fondest, though soon there would be more trouble. Queen Elizabeth was growing paranoid, and Marlowe moved higher up on her watch list. In
0: 1593, the Queen established an organization called the Royal Commission, a group that would target people with differing religious beliefs or anyone the Queen believed was acting against her. In short, a task force to commission state violence.
1: The problem with the queen's directive though was that she didn't make distinctions between people who believed in Catholicism and people who didn't practice religion at all. She perceived both to be threats to her power.
0: In her mind, Protestants should be the exclusive group welcome to England. She believed that having like-minded supporters solidified her power.
1: The commission's formation only served to bring religious tensions to a boiling point. Anti-immigrant sentiment rose as anonymous notes threatening Protestant immigrants from Holland and France popped up around London. Clearly, there were people who opposed the Queen's plans for a Protestant England.
0: A month later, in May, another mysterious letter appeared, posted to the wall of a Dutch churchyard. Known as the Dutch church libel, this letter threatened extreme violence against Dutch Protestant immigrants. It even alluded to attacking people while they prayed. What stood
1: out aside from the letter's grave threats were its allusions. It contained references to Marlowe's plays, The Massacre at Paris and The Jew of Malta in a call for mob violence against Protestant immigrants.
0: The bloodthirsty, ominous letter was signed Tamburlaine, a clear reference to the main character of Marlowe's other play. Seeing the homages to the playwright, rumors began to fly that somehow Marlowe was involved.
1: And soon enough, these caught the Queen's ear. After consulting with her commissioners, they decided anyone suspected must be arrested, starting with Christopher Marlowe.
0: Coming up, a playwright's last day alive. Now, back to the story.
1: By May of 1593, playwright Christopher Marlowe had completely fallen out of Queen Elizabeth's favor. With his controversial plays, atheist beliefs, and now a possible connection to the Dutch church libel, Marlowe was considered a threat to her rule— someone to be watched closely. But that same month, Marlowe's fate took a few unexpected turns.
0: When investigations began to find who was behind the Dutch church libel, the Queen's commissioners arrested poet Thomas Kidd, Marlowe's former roommate. While searching through his things, the commissioners went through a collection of Kidd's papers and found a document that denied the sovereignty of Jesus.
1: Kidd was arrested immediately and subjected to vicious forms of torture. Under duress, the poet exclaimed that the paper didn't belong to him at all. It belonged to Christopher Marlowe. With these words, Kid accused Marlowe of a serious crime, heresy punishable by death.
0: And the confession only confirmed what the commissioners already believed, that Marlowe was an atheist and a threat to the queen. Kid's accusation gave them extra ammunition to punish Marlowe. So on May 18, the Queen's Privy Council ordered his immediate capture, sending a messenger to Thomas Walsingham's estate in Kent. Though he was arrested and briefly detained, Marlowe once again made bail.
1: However, he wasn't exactly free. Similar to how parole operates today, He was ordered to report his whereabouts to the court on a daily basis.
0: Whether or not Marlowe actually wrote the paper, it marked a downward spiral for his luck, which was about to get even worse.
1: About a week after Marlowe was released from jail, a former friend came out of the woodwork, Richard Baines. Baines wasn't so trustworthy, though. He was a spy and had turned against Marlowe because of his atheist beliefs.
0: That May, Baines brought a letter to the court which listed 17 blasphemous statements attributed to Christopher Marlowe. The Baines letter claimed that Marlowe scorned God's word and made fun of Jesus and Moses.
1: Perhaps most shockingly, the letter accused Marlowe of declaring that he could write a new religion One that was, quote, more excellent than the Christian faith that already existed.
0: Baines ended the letter with a call to action, urging all Christian men to come together to stop Marlowe from spreading his dangerous opinions. This declaration went beyond a denunciation. It was Marlowe's death sentence.
1: Similar to the Dutch libel or kids paper, whether Christopher Marlowe actually made those atheist declarations is unclear but the power of this accusation put Marlowe in grave danger.
0: The Baines letter was sent to Queen Elizabeth, who immediately commanded that Marlowe be prosecuted to the full for his perceived crimes, like blasphemous speech. At the time, this could include cutting off the accused's ears. This
1: was a frightening possibility, but incredibly, Marlowe believed he was safe, at least for the time being. He was still living on the bucolic grounds of Thomas Walsingham's Kent estate. There was a warrant out for his arrest, signed by the royal government, but so long as he could evade it, he could stay out of jail. What he didn't anticipate was that his benefactor might actually be the one to put him in danger.
0: As it turns out, artists weren't the only recipients of Thomas Walsingham's financial support. He also employed Ingram Frieser, a businessman with strong ties to the British Secret Service. Frieser's reputation for conducting suspicious financial deals preceded him. But still, by 1593, he was Walsingham's business agent. It seems
1: the two knew each other. After all, they were both working for the same person.
0: And on May 30th, 1593, Frieser invited the writer to London to dine with him.
1: Given that Marlowe had been lying low in Kent, missing the bustling theater scene and nights out, it's easy to guess why he accepted Fryzer's invitation. And so, on a spring day at the end of May, Marlowe joined Fryzer in southeast London. But Fryzer wasn't alone. He brought along two other men, Nicholas Skeers and Robert Poley.
0: Skeers was known to be just as untrustworthy as Fryzer, the two paired together to scam people in money-lending schemes.
1: Polly, on the other hand, was a well-established government agent and one with close ties and direct access to the queen. It certainly wasn't Marlowe's usual crowd, but he likely craved socialization in any form.
0: The group of men gathered at a lodging house and rented a room. However, this was no ordinary traveler's hostel. The house belonged to a wealthy widow with government connections. Whether Marlowe himself was aware of this, we don't know. As for the room the four men
1: shared, it was sparsely decorated and ensured total privacy. The only people that knew about what happened next were in that very room.
0: From what we can gather, it seemed Marlowe enjoyed the three men's company. Together, they smoked tobacco and played backgammon. They shared food, drinks, and lively conversation. It was just the kind of get-together Marlowe needed, especially after his solitude. After
1: a few hours of smoking and games, Marlowe grew restless. He wanted to stretch his legs. So he and the three men walked in the garden, admiring the blooming flowers and budding trees before dinner.
0: And later that evening, once the sun had set, they returned to their room for dinner. Once the meal was finished, Fryzer, Polly, and Skiers stayed at the table. They sat in a row, with Fryzer in the middle.
1: Meanwhile, Marlowe moved from the table to lay down on the bed. He likely felt content and in good spirits. And then, the time came to pay the bill.
0: It's impossible to know exactly what happened next, but according to Fryzer, the night took an extreme twist. Whether over the bill or something else, tensions bubbled over.
1: Without getting up from the bed, Marlowe raised his voice to Fryzer. Fryzer fired back, likely egging on the playwright.
0: Marlowe and Fryzer spoke with, quote, malicious words, throwing insults back and forth. As the argument intensified, neither Poli nor Skears made any apparent attempt to stop them. They just sat on the bench watching the fight unfold.
1: As the situation escalated, Marlowe suddenly jumped up from the bed he was resting on and rushed across
0: the room to the bench, where his companions still sat in a row. This gave him a clear advantage over Fryzer, who was stuck between Pulley and Skeers. Marlowe didn't stop to think. In a swift motion, he grabbed Fryzer's dagger from its sheath and raised the weapon into the air and slammed the dagger's
1: handle down hard into Fryzer's skull. Once, then twice.
0: Then Marlowe paused. It was a moment of thick tension, and yet, Poley and Skeers made no moves to intervene. The two bystanders remained stone-faced and frozen, the only witnesses to the violent scene.
1: Blood dripped from Fryzer's wounds as he wavered in a state of shock. He was hurt... But he didn't want to die, especially not like this. And then, with adrenaline, he fought back.
0: Fryzer snatched the dagger out of Marlowe's grip, leapt up from the bench, and suddenly
1: he was the one with the advantage. He stood above Marlowe and stared down, contempt in his eyes. Then, with all the strength he could muster, Fryzer raised the dagger up and brought it down into Marlowe's right eye. The blade sliced the back of his eye socket, plunging into his brain.
0: The writer's final moments were grim. Marlowe collapsed onto the floor, and his killer watched on as he bled out and took his shaky last breaths.
1: At 29 years old, Christopher Marlowe died on the floor of that rented lodging house room.
0: And with that fatal blow, Ingram Freiser became the prime suspect in Christopher Marlowe's murder. Robert Poli and Nicholas Skeers were the only witnesses. Poli and Skeers would be put on trial and Freiser faced the death penalty.
1: Soon after, by June 1st, 1593, an official investigation was opened into Marlowe's death. The coroner carefully examined Marlowe's corpse, measuring his wounds for evidence, and compared them to Freiser's dagger. Plus, he interviewed Freiser, Polly, and Skeers, recording
0: their accounts of the crime. Once he'd reviewed all his findings, the coroner made a decision. He claimed that Ingram Freiser killed Christopher Marlowe to save his own life.
1: With that official declaration, Freiser's life was spared. It was unlikely he'd be sentenced with the death penalty.
0: Shortly after, Freiser faced trial a suspiciously short trial some observed. Ultimately, Freiser was cleared of his crime and walked free.
1: And about one month after Marlowe's murder,
0: he was pardoned by none other than the queen herself. As the sole witnesses to Christopher Marlowe's murder, Freiser, Polly, and Skiers were the only ones to know what really happened on the night of May 30th, 1593. But the fact that Fryser walked free after a violent killing with the Queen's blessing certainly raised eyebrows. It's led some to believe there's more to the story of Marlowe's death.
1: Whether the men colluded to create a cover-up story or Fryser simply won his freedom in the eyes of the British High Court remains a point of great speculation centuries later.
0: One thing is undeniable though. Christopher Marlowe's death was extremely convenient for Queen Elizabeth's Protestant crusade, and Ingram Frieser made it happen.
1: Next time, we'll return to the strange circumstances of Christopher Marlowe's murder and dive into some of the many conspiracy theories surrounding his death, like conspiracy theory number one, that he was murdered by Thomas Walsingham's wife, Audrey.
0: Or conspiracy theory number two, that he was killed because of his connection with the School of Night, an atheist organization, and at the request of Queen Elizabeth.
1: And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that he didn't die at all and instead took a pen name, William Shakespeare.
0: The exact truth of why Christopher Marlowe was killed at the end of a night with supposed friends might be lost to history.
1: But where there's a will, there's a way. And we know that Freiser, Polly, and Skears certainly had the connections to escape even the most brutal of
0: crimes. So the question is, what exactly about a shunned playwright was worth killing for?
1: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday to unpack the remaining mysteries of Christopher Marlowe's death. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
0: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
1: And the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alexandra Blozier, edited by Stacey Nemec and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Adriana Romero, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.